Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 1, verse 35, through Mark chapter 2, verse 12. If you are able, would you please rise out of respect for God's word as I now read our sermon text. This is the inspired word of God. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it shows us Jesus. May we see him more clearly today, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at Mark 1, verses 21 to 34, and we saw in that passage how Jesus exercised authority through the various areas of his ministry. 
He exercised authority in his teaching. He exercised authority over demons. And he exercised authority through his works of healing. And we talked about how these were the, the main areas of ministry that, that he took part in day by day as he was, was doing his various works. So it should not be surprising that today as we look at our text, we see a very similar pattern in those to those three things. But I want us to focus not just on the fact that he is preaching and cleansing and healing, but I want us to focus on the fact that in each of these three areas, the ministry of Jesus often runs contrary to conventional wisdom. That is, he, he, he seems to do things that, that we wouldn't expect, that we wouldn't think are necessarily the right way to do it. But his wisdom is far greater than ours. We see it first in his preaching. And we see it here in today's text. Jesus once again is, is preaching, but, but we see in the midst of it that his preaching is not without a prayerful foundation. That's our first fill in the blank on your uh, outline if you have. Not without a prayerful foundation. Rising very early, we saw that while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Jesus valued prayer. He made it a priority in his own life. He made sure that he had a time and a place to be spending time with his heavenly Father. Certainly as a pastor, it's incumbent upon me to be in prayer. If I'm going to preach the word of God to you, I need to be praying. And every sermon uh, ha has a notable couple of components, I think, that, that are prayer. You'll see at the very beginning of a sermon, I will always pray. At the very end of the sermon, I will pray once more. But those, those are not the only prayerful parts of a sermon. If I'm doing my job well anyway, or doing it as I should be, uh, I, I need to be praying before I even sit down to, to prepare the sermon. I need to be praying that, that the Lord would open my eyes to his truth in the passage of scripture that I'm going to preach. I need to be praying as I'm preparing to preach the sermon, as I'm studying, and as I'm getting ready for it. I need to pray before I preach. I need to pray in the act of preaching. I need to pray after I've preached if I'm going to do it well. It needs to be bathed in prayer. But, but it's not just me even. I, I covet your prayers when I'm preaching also. Prayer is so vital that, that we need you to be praying as well, that I, that I wouldn't be off base, that I wouldn't be saying wrong things, that I wouldn't be leading us astray, that I'd be in line with what God would have to say for us. These are all true. But I think we limit, we, we wrongly limit this uh, application, I guess, if we apply it only to preachers. Uh, we, we all, regardless of what kind of work we're doing or what, what we are doing, should be bathing our whole life in prayer. It should be our habit. It should be a foundational part of our lives. Conventional wisdom might say that, that sometimes we're just too busy to pray, right? We, we pray if we have time to, you know, and maybe we sneak a prayer into this part of our day or, or we sneak a prayer into this part of the day, but sometimes we get busy and kind of forget to or maybe don't have as much time to. Uh, it, I would argue that on the 
busier days, perhaps those are the days that we need more prayer. If we have more things going on, we have more things we need to be praying about then, right? Martin Luther famously once was asked about what his plans were for the following day. And he said, work, work, and work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do, I will spend the first three hours in prayer. Right? And that, that kind of defies conventional wisdom for us, right? Well, I've got so much to do, maybe I'll cut back on my prayer time so I can fit in all the other things. Luther's saying, no. No, if you have so much to do, that's all the more reason to spend more time in prayer. That's certainly how Jesus was. That was certainly the mindset that he took into things. This mindset that the more we have to do, the more we need to be praying that we might give those things over to the Lord that he might be at work in and through us as we go about the various tasks that we have set before us in a day. His preaching was not without a prayerful foundation. It was also not about a big audience. That wasn't his goal, right? He wasn't about building a big mega church so that he could stand up front and maybe fly around in his uh, private jets and uh, wear the you know, $15,000 suits and, you know, do all those. That wasn't what he was about. Too often, uh, with conventional wisdom, it says that if you're a preacher, you want to build up the numbers, right? You want to have uh, large crowds about you. But, but too often, what we see is, is big personalities who can gather people around them that create really more of a cult of personality than a church. Right? And we need to Avoid that. Jesus sets a pattern for us that demonstrates very little interest in this. In verse 36, Simon and those who were with him were searching for him, right? He, he had kind of disappeared. He is, he is off praying by himself in a secluded place. Conventional wisdom says, you know, Jesus, you've got them where you want them, right? We've, you've done these miracles. You've done these healings. Everybody's wanting to see more and hear more. You've got them in your hands. You can, you can get them to do whatever you want them to do. But Jesus can't be found. He's off on his own. He's not even in front of these people that he's so impressed. He, he could just blow this whole thing up and make it huge. If only he was putting himself in front of those people again. Numerical growth is great, and we'd love for the Lord to provide it here at Calvary. That would be wonderful if every pew was full on every Sunday morning, if we had that kind of vitality. But the kind of growth that we are most concerned with, and the kind of growth that Jesus is most concerned with, is not so much numerical growth, but rather a spiritual growth, a depth of understanding and knowledge of him as our Savior, a depth of understanding of God, a depth of relationship with him that we should individually and corporately seek to have here at our church. We need to make his love known and make the gospel of the kingdom known. And that's what he was interested in doing. See what happens next after they find him in verse 37. They said, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. And he says, okay, well, let's leave then. Right? Because he's not interested in building this huge thing there. Why, why is it that, that he's come? Remember what he's proclaiming? Back in verse 14, he said uh, that he came, or verse 15, 
He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's come to, to proclaim that in him the, the kingdom of God is unfolding in their midst and that people need to repent and believe. Repent and believe. He's proclaimed that there. And now there are other people that need to hear that message. So he needs to move on to others that he might proclaim it to them. And, and then he needs to take the message to others as well. People needed to hear that in the one town in Galilee, but they need to hear it in the next town and the next town. And you know where else people need to hear that? People need to hear that in Flint, Michigan. People need to hear that the kingdom of God is at hand. People need to hear that they need to repent of their sins and turn to Christ Jesus. People need to hear that he is the way and the truth and the life. And we are the ones who need to share that truth with them. And so he went through out Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It's almost a throwaway phrase there, it seems. Uh, he goes around preaching, and oh, by the way, casting out demons. And we'll move on now. And, and I'm caused to say, well, wait a second. What, what exactly is going on here? And I think we need to realize that, that the casting out of demons is essentially his spiritual cleansing of them, right? They, 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 they are controlled in some way by this demonic power and, and he has cleansed them of it essentially and, and so we turn now our attention to that second part of our outline his cleansing, the ministry of Jesus often runs contrary to conventional wisdom in his cleansing specifically his cleansing is greater than our uncleanness and what a wonderful truth that is we see a leper come to him in verse 40, and we need to understand that leprosy was actually not just one disease, but kind of a class of diseases, skin diseases. But oftentimes, more serious cases of leprosy, what we'd see is, is that, that skin would, would actually be so damaged, it would actually rot away, and it would be, be uh, numb. And so like even you have situations where people get injured, if, if you've ever had numbness, you know, like severe numbness in your hands or your feet. It can cause lots of problems. If it's in your feet, you might be prone to tripping. If it's in your hands, you know, you might put your hand down on a, on a hot stovetop and not realize, and, you know, and, and so there's all kinds of problems that you can end up with because of this, these physical problems. But the problems of leprosy went far beyond the physical issues, which are bad enough in and of themselves. There were economic problems that happened to Israel because, because of this disease. They, they couldn't have a job. They were left just to be beggars. And, and, and even beyond that, perhaps most significantly, there were religious issues, right? They, they because they had this leprosy, were ceremonially unclean. And, and that means that they had to live outside the camp. They, they weren't allowed to be in the midst of the covenantal community. They couldn't worship with the people of God. They couldn't gather with the people of God. They couldn't, couldn't relate to them. And, and even if, if they were to come upon somebody, they had to yell out, unclean, 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 so that people knew not to get anywhere near them. Right? It was a lonely existence. There was a, a relational toll that it took on them, right? Because, because there is this absence of touch, of, of relationship, Altogether, this is just an emotional and psychological toll it must have weighed upon them. 
in many ways, truly without hope and without God in this world. So the leper comes to Jesus and he implores him, we see in verse 40, kneels before him and says, if you will, you can make me clean. We don't know why exactly the leper thinks this. Perhaps he's heard word of the healings that Jesus has done, the casting out of demons maybe, the, the, the different physical healings that he's accomplished. Perhaps word has gotten to him about these. Whatever it was though, we see this, that he definitely has a, a faith that will empower him to entrust himself to Jesus here, right? He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you're my best shot. Give it a whack. See if, see if it'll work, right? No. He says, if you will, if it's your desire, if you want to do it, Jesus, you can heal me. He's sure of it. There's no doubt in his mind. Jesus can heal him. And we see that this trust is well-founded. Jesus moved with pity, it says in verse 41. Reached out and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. It's an amazing thing that happens here. Conventional wisdom says you don't touch a leper. Not just because of the sickness aspect of it, which again would be enough, but the uncleanness aspect of it. Not physically unclean, but ceremonially unclean. For if anybody touched a leper, then they too would become ceremonially unclean and would have to separate. But Jesus reaches out and touches him. He touches him. Just imagine what that would be like for a person who for weeks, months, years, has not felt the touch of another human being. Jesus, filled with pity, filled with compassion, reaches out and touches him, perhaps puts his hand on his shoulder, pats him on his back, perhaps hugs him. We don't know, the text doesn't say, but we do know that this this phrase, moved with pity, is, is a phrase that means to have compassion, to have pity, to have deep empathy. It, it expresses just this, this depth of feeling that, that we might in our common language say something like this, this feeling in my gut or in my heart, this, this something from the depths of me is where it comes from. It's the same verb actually that's used in Luke 15 talking about the prodigal son's father. Right? It says the, you know, the prodigal son has been far off, both physically and spiritually and relationally and every other way. And he's decided to come home and to humble himself. And we read in Luke 15, 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. It's the same word that's translated as moved with pity here. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Or in Luke 10, story of the Good Samaritan, right? He's left by the side of the road, half dead. The priest, the Levite, passed by, but then a Samaritan comes by, right? And as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus similarly is moved with compassion, or as the ESV translates it here, is moved with pity. And he touches the man. It, it reminded me of the same way that Jesus, in a sense, touches us, right? He, he who was and is God eternally took on human flesh so that we might know him. He got his hands dirty, as it were, right? He, he moved with pity, did this for us. I'm reminded of the words of the hymnist Joseph Hart, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Right, just like with the leper, Jesus finds us in the midst of our ugliness, in the midst of our uncleanness, and he applies his righteousness to us. What would happen if I took a, a glass of clean water and a glass of dirty water, right, and, and, and I, I poured the clean water into the dirty water, right? What happens then? Well, the clean water that I had is now dirty water in with the dirty water, right? We can all imagine that. But just imagine if I had this glass of dirty water here and I took some clean water and poured it in and all of a sudden the dirty water just became clean water. Like, how, how did that happen? I don't know, it's probably some magic trick or something. I, I don't know, it's some kind of trick, you know, some chemical reaction. I don't know, what, how did the clean water make the dirty water clean? I don't know, but that's what Jesus does, right? He takes his righteousness and applies it to our unrighteousness. And instead of him becoming unrighteous, unrighteous by intermingling with us, we become righteous because of him, and he is holy. Conventional wisdom would say that it would be the other way around, but we actually become clean. Our sin is extraordinary, filthy, but his holiness is greater yet. We'll sing in just a moment here, grace greater than my sin, right? No matter how much sin we have, his grace is greater yet, and it is enough to overcome it. His cleansing is greater than our uncleanness. And his plans are greater than our plans. Right? So often the plans of God seem to be upside down. There's a couple of reasons for this, or a few reasons. Uh, well, one is that we're broken. Our hearts, our minds, all that is within us is broken. I say it all the time, and I will continue to say it all the time, because it is 180 degrees diametrically opposed with how our culture thinks. Our culture says, follow your heart above all else. And our God says, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Right? We need to believe God instead of believing the world. We need to 
think about things rightly, but our knowledge is limited. God can see all things. He knows all things. He can see the whole picture. We can't, and even if we did, we are selfish. I know I am. Frankly, I know you are too, right? That's just the way we see the world. We see it from our perspective. Even if we're generous and kind, there is a certain selfishness to us that's just baked into us, right? We have to fight against it. We fail to consider others more important than ourselves. We fail to love others as ourselves. And all these reasons leave us as terrible judges of what is best. But like Adam and Eve before us, we persist in thinking that we know better than God. And we will do what we want to do instead of what he wants us to do. We see here Jesus sternly charged the leper. He said, see that you don't say anything to anyone. Go show yourself to the priest. Make the proper, uh, the proper things that Moses commanded. It couldn't be more clear what he's supposed to do, but we see in verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely about it. Right? And I can just picture Jesus just, <laughs> come on, dude. You know, I, I, this is kind of a weird connection, but you'll see where I'm getting eventually. When I was a freshman, I played on the freshman basketball team, and we had a player on our team that was really good. He, he, could, just, I mean, he could just put the ball in the basket like nobody's business. And this one game we're losing by three, or we're winning by three points with seven seconds left. And I'm really old. Uh, when I played, we didn't have the three-point shot, right? So it was, it was still, you know, you're up by three, you have the ball, seven seconds left. There's basically no way we can lose at this point. We throw the ball into our best player. He goes straight to the basket, lays it in beautifully. And you think, wow, well, that sounds great. It sounds great, except he put it in the wrong basket. Now, you would think that couldn't happen like at the end of the game when you've been playing all, all half long. We've been shooting at that basket. But he put in that honest-to-goodness truth. He thought he was doing very well. He thought he was accomplishing something really good. Turns out he was a hindrance to us winning that game, right? And so it is here that this leper thought he was doing a good thing, even though he had been told he ought not to. He was actually a hindrance. Jesus no longer, we read, could openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places as a worse. Even though it defied divide conventional wisdom, he should have obeyed Jesus, and so should we. Finally, one more thing. We see this idea that the ministry of Jesus runs contrary to conventional wisdom in his ministry of healing. So often we focus on the wrong things, right? And you used the scripture reading, you'll remember there was a man that thought what he really needed was money. But Peter gives him healing instead. Here we find another guy who thinks he needs healing, but we see that what he really needs is something else even more than that. They go back to Capernaum. It's reported that Jesus is there. Crowds are gathering and there's no room, not even at the door, we read. He's preaching and the house is packed. And, 
And this group of four men come. We don't know anything about them. Uh, we don't know their name. We don't know where they lived exactly, but they come, bring a friend. This is what we do know about him. They cared enough about the man to bring him to Jesus. And they knew that he was the one that they should bring him to. And they were undaunted by all obstacles, right? They get there. The crowd has filled the house. There's no way they can get to Jesus. They say, no problem. We'll just take him up on the rooftop. We'll cut a hole in the house. His roof, I'm sure the homeowner appreciated that. And then they dropped him down into the room and said, hey, Jesus, look at this guy coming down to you. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, a most unexpected thing, son, and we expected to say, get up and walk. He says, no, your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say this? It's because he knew what the man's greatest need was. We sometimes come to Jesus because we think we need uh, more money. We think we need more toys. We think we need political affirmation. We think we need a pat on the back. We think we need personal fulfillment. We think we need all these different things. We come to Jesus for them, but what we really need from Jesus is forgiveness. We need his blood shed on Calvary's cross for us. We need his body broken on Calvary's cross for us. We need his forgiveness that only he can offer. And that's what he gave to him here. The scribes, they, they question what's going on. They said, they said in their hearts, they, they're, they're thinking, who, who is this man and how can he do this? That's blasphemy to forgive sins. And they're right, it would be blasphemy to forgive sins if you are not God. But Jesus, since he is God, knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Kind of like when I was a kid and I thought I was being sneaky, but my parents knew exactly what I was doing, you know? Jesus knows their hearts. So he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? You know, both of those things are things that only God can say. Only God can say either of those things. Only God can accomplish either of those things, but one of them is verifiable. Right? So, so it seems easier to say your sins are forgiven because like, you know, hey guys, just letting you know your sins are forgiven, great. You know, well, are they really? Uh, I don't know. But if you tell the paralytic to get up and walk and he tries to get up and walk and can't, well, that's trouble. But Jesus says, so that you, you who doubt you who wonder, you who disbelieve, so that you may know that the Son of Man does indeed have authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Three things he could not do until that moment. He could not rise, he could not pick up his bed, he could not go home. But he says that to him. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. 
That's our final point here is healing. Something that we respond to in the wrong way. You say, what? The wrong way? That seems like the right thing to do. I mean, they said they were amazed. They, they'd never seen anything like that. Well, that's true. But simple amazement was insufficient for the moment, wasn't it? They essentially looked at it and said, wow, neat magic trick, Jesus. When's your next show? That was the essence of their response to it. What they should have done was fallen at his feet and worshipped him as the God of the universe who he is. We tend to do that too. We gather here to sing songs, to say prayers, and that's good. But sometimes we do it simply because, well, that's what you do on Sunday mornings. Or maybe, you know, that's just kind of what I want to do. I want to be around certain people because, you know, I like the people there, great. And if we do this worship thing, all right. You know, maybe they've got really good donuts. Probably have extra ones today, I imagine. Not as many people here. I could have two. Yeah. Well, those are all wonderful things, but they're not worshiping God as we ought, in spirit and in truth, looking to Jesus as not only a good example, not only a, a neat magician, but the one who died for our sins, who gives us new life, and the one whose grace is greater than all our sins. Indeed, he is the one we should worship. He is our king. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to know the truth of your word. Apply it to our lives. Help us to, to realize now and forever that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is God. May we live our lives in the knowledge of those truths to the glory of his name in which we now pray. Amen.